0: Hey, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would answer some patron emails. I have a long list of them, so I want to get to them. Back in the old days, I was able to answer all the questions, and it always gives me anxiety that the emails keep piling up, so (laughs) here we go. Patron Ingrid from London says, How do you cope with a partner who is a compulsive liar? How do you cope with a partner who is a compulsive liar? All the info I found on the Internet says to not confront and to run away from a compulsive liar as soon as possible. But I don't want to run away from him because I love him. Any suggestions on how to deal with the situation and make the relationship grow? Our trust is almost completely broken, and I feel very insecure about everything. He is working hard in therapy to get better, and I would like to help on my side as much as possible to rebuild that trust. End of email. Yeah, ugh, the internet and friends, honestly, will have very bad advice, but the easy advice. Whenever a friend or the internet is faced with the question, What do I do with this difficult situation? the internet and the friend will almost always give the easy answer of, Well, just end the situation. It's as if you say, Huh, you know, my house, it's great, but the one of the bedrooms it you know it smells a little funny what should i do they'll say burn the house down to the ground and move somewhere else that is an easy answer to give and it's satisfying because it you know pe- people giving that advice the internet and friends can just you know go yep job well done i solve the problem when it rarely does so now if you want to leave this person then obviously you can And if you feel very insecure, you you know, you might, there might be a situation where you've been so beaten down emotionally and mentally that you might not even value your own needs. So I would really make sure in therapy that you uh, explore that. But in my experience working with, you know, people who suffer from compulsive lying are absolutely quote unquote salvageable and relationships are certainly salvageable. It just depends on whether or not you want to salvage it. And he's in therapy, which is good. And what do you, can you do on your side? Well, I might ask the therapist how you can help. It would be sh- weird if the if his therapist didn't want to talk with you. So I would reach out to that therapist. And typically what you want to work on together as a couple and with the therapist is how to help your husband or your partner understand what the triggers are to lying. So they There are many different reasons why people would be a compulsive liar. And what do we mean by compulsive liar? Well, typically what we mean is someone who is compulsive about lying, right? Meaning that they don't have control over it. It's like a habit or this knee-jerk reaction that they have to lie, even when it doesn't serve them. And why do they develop that? Well, often it's developed in response to trauma or fear early in life, and the child will learn that, If they lie quickly, they will get away with things more easily and avoid punishment, severe, harsh punishment that is likely to come if they tell the truth. So it locks in this knee-jerk behavior of lying very quickly, almost about things that don't make any sense to lie about. And there are a lot of people who suffer from this. And so helping that individual understand the triggers to lying so that they can avoid those triggers – Also helping them to feel safe to tell the truth and recover from their traumas that they, uh, you know, that led to the compulsive lying defense to begin with. And then you can encourage him to continue working and to help him to feel like he's on the right track. And then, of course, to reward when he tells the truth with whatever sort of social reward you think is, is good, just complimenting it. Thank you for telling me the truth. You know, that really helps me have trust in you. Uh, all those things are things you can do, I'm guessing, but I would talk with a the therapist. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron MJ from Australia. They write, How do I heal from the trauma inflicted by a doctor? I am non binary and I saw an endocrinologist back in the day in order to start testosterone. She told me, the endocrinologist, she told me to lie down on the bed and without asking my consent she opened my underwear to check and inspect my genitals for signs of intersex appearances at the time this was considered the norm and acceptable medical practice however now it is considered harmful traumatic and has been ceased as a practice how do i work with a therapist on this when i feel very distrustful in the very system that was meant to help me end of email well first off mj i say i'll say that it's terrible you went through that i'm you know, it's really rough from your description. It just sounds awful. I, I just can't imagine that happening. It's like it's in, you had a longer email that went into how you have sexual traumas in your history that were triggered in that moment, which makes sense. And it also makes sense that you would be distrustful of the system or working with other professionals like a therapist when you've been violated and traumatized by professionals in the past. The key, I think, to your success is making sure that you're with a therapist who understands trans and non-binary issues, people who have experience with that. In particular, maybe just finding a trans or non-binary therapist themselves, right? I, in Seattle, I just did a quick... Google for non-binary therapists in Seattle and there's this huge list on psychology today. I'm not sure what's in Australia, but I, I, I'm, I hope that you have a resource like that. And if you find a, a non-binary therapist and interview them, tell them you're maybe even this story and just see how they respond, that will I hope be able to for you know for you to find the right therapist for you and for you to feel safe and get the healing and care that you deserve. All right, this next email is from Patron M from London. She writes, I'm getting frustrated with my struggling friend. I know that being someone's friend doesn't mean fixing their problems and that listening is good, but I am struggling with my friend. My best friend has always had big self-esteem issues related in particular to her body. She binge eats and then hates herself and won't start dating and pursue her dream career until she has lost a lot of weight, and it's been like that for a long time. I've always been supportive and tried to make her see things in a more relaxed way without telling her that she is wrong, but lately I've found myself getting really impatient with her, and our meetups beco- and, and our meetups have become less and less frequent because I can't cope with another conversation about always the same issues that she's not addressing. I try to get to ta- I try to get us to talk about other fun things, but it always goes back to her issues. I don't want to disappear on her, especially since I know she's terrified of abandonment, but I also don't want to see her and then be- and then become mean out of frustration to her. Any idea what I should do? End of email. Yeah, this is a common thing for friends and particularly for therapists. We therapists will have clients who come in with issues, and it can become frustrating for a variety of reasons. One, we look at someone and we're just like, just be different. Uh, if you just change the way you see the world, then everything will be different. And it for us, it's easy on the outside. Of course, for the individual it's, that is struggling, it's hard for them. The other thing is that it's just hard to watch people suffer. Uh, call it a bias, a cognitive bias for example someone is in pain and they're in chronic pain well it's really common for people around people with chronic pain to get frustrated with a person in in pain we you know say you have a spouse or a family member that is chronic fatigue or chronic pain or IBS or something and it's really normal for family members to just get annoyed of just like this again and We have this bias to blame the victim, to blame the person suffering and just be like, will you just stop it? And, you know, anyone understands if they think about it for half a second that, of course, the reaction of anger towards the victim doesn't make any sense. But it is very common. And therapists can fall into this trap as well. It's hard to watch someone struggle with things that are seemingly, uh, you know, changeable, right? Right. So you're looking at your friend, and you're you're like, wow, you have big self-esteem issues. You have body issues. You binge eat, and then you hate yourself, and you won't move forward in your life. And from your perspective, M, from London, you're thinking, well, if you just didn't hate yourself, and if you just had better self-esteem, or at least if you just worked on it and had positive self-talk— then you could turn this thing around but you talk so negatively about yourself of course your life is going to go down the tube so you know how come you choose to be that way well the the question is is it a choice it might be some people do have you know they will make that choice for various different reasons but the vast majority of people do not and so when people engage in that kind of chronic negative self-talk and and self-judgment it's because of relational traumas that they went through and and these people it's an automatic thought that they have it's just a schema that they have about the world and without therapy which i recommend that you recommend to them then it it's not likely to change so that's the first thing to think about is are you assuming that they that your friend has control over things that they actually have no control over the other thing to think about in my lingo is transference countertransference which is this idea that clients will socialize or react to us in a way that will involve us in their past relationships. And then we will have counter reactivity in a, internally, you know, in reaction to their transference, we might call these enactments, we might call it projective identification. But essentially, one possibility is that your friend grew up with a parent who was extremely judgmental, and rejecting, uh, maybe even disgusted with her. Maybe she had a father that was disgusted with her body or a mother that rejected her a lot because she wasn't good enough or something. And so she internalized that and through transference or projective identification, she will induce others to feel the same feelings that her parent did. And you are possibly feeling the exact same feelings that the friend's parents felt against her and that she feels against herself. And so because I hear hints of disgust and rejection in your email. Now, of course, you're free to do that. You're not this person's therapist. You're a friend. So you know you can have whatever re- reaction you want to have. But it's possible that your friend is actually inducing you to feel disgust with her and to reject her. So now, does that mean you have to be a friend? No, it, it it just can explain maybe the intensity of the feelings that you're having. The next thing to think about is that your own issues might be triggered. You actually might be in an interlocking or mutual protective identification where your friend is actually exhibiting a part of you that you really hate about yourself. And you are attacking her when in reality you really want to attack yourself in some way. And, of course, you'd want to go to therapy to investigate and heal from that as well. The other thing to think about is differentiation. Differentiation differentiation, I often talk about one of the aspects of it is the ability to differentiate between self and other. And so when someone is struggling, and we are getting we're getting sucked down with them, then if we have differentiation, we're able to say, okay, that's their feelings, that's their struggle. And it's not mine. I, I wish them the best. And I hope that they don't struggle. And if I can help them, I will. But unless there's a really clear way I can help there really isn't any use in me getting involved emotionally because I, I, I'm just going to get dragged down with them. I'll be with them, and I'll listen to them, and I'll love them, and I will care for them. I'll have empathy for them, but, I, but I'm not going to get super involved. There's a possibility that you are getting uh, fused or undifferentiated or enmeshed with your friend as your friend is struggling You're either being sucked in and or you're pushing into this, into her world, trying to change her. And then she is unchangeable or pushing back on you or something. And that's what is causing you to have disgust and rejection themes in your response to her. And so it's possible, again, talk with a therapist about this, that if you remained differentiated and said, you know, she has her problems and I feel bad for her, but there's really nothing I can do and I'll be there for her. But I'm not going to get too wrapped up in it because there's, there's not much I can do. And maybe the best thing I, I can do as a friend is to be differentiated and to not get sucked down with her. Now, as I said, if she's no longer a good friend and you really just hate spending time with her, then maybe rejecting her or, you know, letting go of that friendship or limiting your time with that person, uh, you know, it's up to you. Uh, I don't think anyone would say you're a jerk face for doing that. It's not your responsibility to save everyone on the planet. But there's a possibility that if you think about some of the things that I discussed here today, that it might be you know, completely tolerable to, to uh, be with her. The, and the last thing I'll say is you can absolutely, as a last-ditch effort in particular, if you are thinking about uh, limiting severely your time with her, is to have a sit-down with her and just be like, look, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I love you. You're my best friend. And I want to be there for you. But I find it really hard, one, to listen to your issues because it, 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 it's hard to hear about because I I care about you. And it also just feels so entrenched. The other thing that I want to tell you is that I, when I get together with you, I don't, you know, if you're struggling, I, I'm here for you. But I don't want our get-togethers to be only about your struggles. I want I want to th- have fun. I also want uh, our time to be about things that I'm interested in. And so, it, again, I I love you and I want to be with you and and I'm I- I'm willing to hear about your struggles, but I don't want to hear about it all the time. I-, I I think you should be talking with a therapist about that kind of thing. I'd like to have some fun and some giggles. And so, it- is that okay with you? Uh, you know, uh, instead of walking away from a friendship, I think it's a good idea to give someone a chance in that way. All right, this next email is from Patron Anna from Ireland. She writes, uh, and I'll just summarize. She she wants me to talk about overachiever, overachiever underachiever dynamic, and she couldn't find any episodes specifically where I talked about it. And although she does know I talk about it in my ninety day fiance reaction videos on YouTube. And by the way, uh, a lot of you know this, but some of you maybe don't, that I have a YouTube channel where I do all of our audio episodes are posted as well. But I will every day post uh, sometimes or, well, I think every day we post two episodes of reaction videos. And in those reaction videos... I will go into you know detail on a lot of the things that I talk about on the podcast and beyond. You know, watching these reaction videos will uh, prompt me to talk about various different things. And so, if if you've never watched those videos, uh, even if you don't like reality TV, you might actually like to watch them. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's not for everyone, of course. But uh, but anyway, uh, so uh, Patreon is saying overfunctioner or overachiever, underachiever. And then she says, I tried to Google about it and I couldn't find any good information. I was wondering, she wanted me to talk more about it. So I think what you're referring to, Anna, is is overfunctioner under-functioner. And the the best way you can actually find episodes on it is to go to our website, go to the list of episodes page. And if you're on a, Uh, you know, an Android or a PC, then you do control F. If you're on an Apple product, you do command F or, you know, search on page and just search for um, over function or under function. And I see three episodes there that have that as one of the topics. I think all of them are email episodes. One is from July of 2020. One's from December of 2020. And one is from August of 2020. So, Last year, apparently, a lot of people emailed in about that, and I would listen to those episodes. All right, this next email is from Patron Daria. She writes, or Daria, what are the roots of greedy or stingy qualities? What are the roots of greedy or stinginess? I'm curious as to where greed or stinginess originates from and in people. It seems to be present regardless of social status background, although those from poor backgrounds tend to be stingy more rarely. Is it a quality that is reasonable to tolerate in a partner or a friend? Is it something that can be worked on in therapy and of email? Yeah, well, the first thing to think about is, what do we mean by greed? What do we mean by stinginess? Are we talking about frugality? Um, what are we talking about here? Well, stinginess usually refers to excessive non-spending, would be the way I'd put it. Meaning that you probably should spend money in the situation but you choose not to as a habit. Uh, Perhaps lack of empathy for others is involved in this. Like uh, an example that I think people might be able to relate to is you have that friend or that family member that doesn't split the bill, you all sit down for dinner. And they always let you pay for the check they never offer to, to, uh, you know, pay their part. So That is usually what we're referring to as stinginess and other kinds of behaviors. Sometimes it's in couples. People will see their spouse as being very stingy and not wanting to spend money on things, or someone will think their parent, when you're a kid, you think your parents are being stingy because they won't spend money on things. But it really is difficult to define because one person's stinginess is another person's frugality. Frugality usually refers to being responsible and conscientious with your money. So... For one person, uh, if they're not buying, you know, if you're a 16-year-old and you want a new pair of shoes and your parents say no, the child will say the parent is being stingy and the parents will say, no, I'm being frugal. So this is really hard to define. Uh, We also have greed. You're talking about that. We're usually referring to excessive gathering and hoarding of money. Uh, meaning that you don't need that money, but again, what ref, you know? How do we differentiate between greed and conscientious saving? And it's hard to hard to know. And usually, it's you know, in relation to ourselves, right? If if we're the one saving, then we're being conscientious and frugal. But if if someone else wants us to spend our money and we don't spend it, then we're being stingy and bad and greedy. So. You know, it's hard, kind of hard to define. Um, now, you're asking, you know, where does it come from? Uh, there's not a lot of research on this, but just thinking of the uh, accusations of stinginess that I've seen being waged on others, I would imagine the following factors is all possible. One is is poverty. You know, coming from a poor background, living in poverty could, and then later on you have funds to, uh, you know, discretionary funds, You could imagine coming from a place of fear of, uh, you know, not having enough and being quote unquote stingy in someone else's eyes. Another possibility is modeling. If you had quote unquote stingy parents, then you might be quote unquote stingy yourself. And again, I'm putting it in quotes because it's not something as a therapist that I would identify. You know, I wouldn't, if someone, if a family came into my office and they were like, our dad is stingy, I wouldn't label him as stingy, I would just label it as a conflict between these individuals, and they could could label it however they want to, but I wouldn't label it stingy. I would say, uh, one person wants you to spend money, and that other person wants to save their money. You know, I'm not going to label it with a judgmental label. Um, Also, anxiety can cause, quote unquote, stinginess about a variety of things, worries of losing your job, worries of the economy going down, worries of not being able to afford something, um, you know, anxiety obviously c- could. Ca- obsessiveness w- could be another factor. If you know, some people they really think about money in their uh, bank account a lot. Other people don't, and so you can imagine that obsessiveness could increase the likelihood of not spending your money very often. Some people just like to save, which which is I'm not going to call that stinginess. I'm just going to call that person you know, they just they just like to save money and they, or. They don't have lavish tastes. Some people, they're just like, look, uh, I have what I need and I'm good with it. <laughs> Another is transgenerational trauma. If you come from generations of poverty or uncertainty, then those uh, ideals can be passed down and you know, being conservative with your money could be a part of that. The economy could cause people to save their money in a way that displeases you. Um, also, um, some people are trying to save money so they can give to others. So they're actually generous with their money in one direction. And so they have to be quote unquote stingy with their money in another direction. For example, if you are a friend of someone and that person is frequently quote unquote stingy about splitting the bill for dinner, but they are saving on their money and sending money to their parents who live in another country then is that stinginess or is that just, you know, being good with money? You know, who knows? Um, Another is classism concerns. Some people might really want to move up the class ladder and they perceive holding on to money and being careful with their money. Another factor, as I was saying earlier, is a lack of empathy. Uh, Some people don't have as much empathy for various reasons, either inherently or they just don't notice when other people need things, or they have a hard time picking up on social cues or something. And they might not understand that they're being, quote unquote, stingy in someone else's eyes in that moment, or they might not care. So you're asking, how do you tolerate it? Well, I, I would just speak up. I would say, hey, I feel like you're, when you don't pay the bill, or when you, uh, I don't know what, you know, you didn't tell me, Daria, the situations, but when you're doing this behavior, that you, Daria, are laboring, stingy. You probably don't want to say the word stingy. You want to say, when you do this and that with your money, it hurts my feelings and concerns me. You're perfectly uh, in the right to say something. Maybe they don't know how they're affecting you, and that's that's probably where I would start. And then you say, you know, how can it change in therapy, or can it change in therapy? Yeah, absolutely. Anything can change in therapy, psychologically and behaviorally or has the potential. And couples therapy is perhaps a venue for that. Um, but, you know, there's other venues as well. I, I can't imagine an individual coming to me and saying, the only thing I want to work on is the fact that I'm stingy. You know, I I don't see that happening very often. But, you know, someone might come in and say, I have a lot of anxiety about finances, or I have transgenerational trauma, intergenerational trauma around poverty and chaos and, uh, you know, refugee status. And I feel like I have a lot of uh, compulsive and obsessive thoughts about things in my daily life that are related to my, you know, tr- you know intergenerational trauma. So we will work on that. But um, but yeah, that's my answer to that question. All right, let's take a break and we get back more emails. <laughs> All right, it's time for OPP. I want to do some patron shout-outs. These five individuals have been patrons since December of 2016. We have Noah from Los Angeles. We have Chana from Toronto. We have Stephanie, who I believe I have emailed with you, from Massachusetts. And we have Quinn who doesn't have an address on Patreon, so I don't know where Quinn is from. We have Chris from Tarzana, California. So thank you, Noah, Chana, Stephanie, Quinn, and Chris, for not only being a patron, but also being a patron over almost five years. So thank you so much for sticking with us. Okay, this next email is from Patron D from California. She writes, I'm talking to a guy, and I'm interested in him a lot. We're both the type of people who would say that we are better when we are alone. How do people like us navigate a romantic relationship while also attending to our feelings of wanting to be alone? Most people will move in together and eventually get married, but I can't help but wonder if that type of relationship would not work for people like us. End of email. Yeah, this is a thing. Uh, There are plenty of people uh, who probably their optimum lifestyle— is to be in a romantic relationship, romantic sexual relationship, but not live in the same house, or live in the same house but spend a lot of time in their own offices or something. This is not the romantic ideal uh, in the United States. In the in the United States, the romantic ideal is your soulmates. You spend all your time together, and you never do anything apart. Uh, you know, a common manifestation of this is you're having Thanksgiving and. Uh, you're, you know, say you're in your 20s and you're uh, with someone, you're married or you're in a long-term relationship, and your partner's family lives in another area of the country, uh, you know, another state or something, and the notion of the two of you splitting and you going to your family's Thanksgiving and your partner's going to their family's Thanksgiving is, for some people, abhorrent. Uh, Not because it is a terrible idea for anyone, but because it looks bad. It kind of looks like you're divorced or you're not really connected or you're not really in a relationship. You're not in a real relationship unless you spend all of your time together. You socialize together. You go to the movies together. You go to the grocery store together. You sleep in the same bed. You live together. you, You do everything together. And that is the ideal. But that is not necessarily the ideal for every that can be the ideal for sure for some people. But there are plenty of people that, as yourself, D and and your partner, like to spend a lot of time alone. And there is nothing wrong with that. But we have a culture that is so stupid. It can't imagine variance in human behavior. And so you're going to, one, be judged by others and you will internalize that judgment and judge yourselves. But please do not do that. All right. This next email is from Anonymous patron, she writes, "Uh, Can you do an episode on PTSD versus complex PTSD? Is complex PTSD caused by relational trauma? Is it possible to have both PTSD and complex PTSD at the same time? For example, PTSD from an isolated event, like losing your home in a natural disaster, and complex PTSD from relational trauma, like being physically abused in a relationship. I have experienced both events and have triggers and flashbacks and panic and anxiety over both of them separately. Is it possible to have both PTSD and complex PTSD? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. So PTSD and complex PTSD are obviously related, but they are different. And there's various different definitions of complex PTSD. PTSD itself is pretty well defined. And pretty well, there's a pretty good consensus. But complex PTSD, there's not a huge consensus yet as to what exactly that refers to. Uh, It almost always refers to, as you ask, uh, relational trauma early in life, meaning that with uh, common PTSD, say you're a war veteran and you saw someone die before you or you killed someone that can cause PTSD as well and you come home from the from war and you have PTSD symptoms and your trauma was watching someone die or being your life being threatened uh, this is what we call simple trauma uh, not because it's simple or small but because it is discrete and with complex PTSD yeah, we're talking about relational trauma and so with this it your PTSD is complicated because those people who were supposed to be there for you were also traumatizing you. So, And it was usually over a span of time. So with if if we go to war and we have trauma, we can come back home and we can hug our family and our pets and we can be in our house and we might be able to be made to feel safe again in our house because we're away from the war. If we're in a car accident and we have trauma... PTSD from that, then we can avoid being in a car, right? And we can go home and we can cry on our spouse's shoulders or whatever. With complex PTSD, you have been traumatized by someone that it, that you're supposed to trust. And so not only do you have PTSD, but it's complicated by the fact that when you run to people for support, which is what we do as humans, our we we can be triggered by our efforts to run towards people that are supposed to be there for us because that was the sort of relationship that traumatized us in the past. That's the way I consider complex PTSD, but you'll hear other people describe it differently. Now, research by uh, CLORTRA 2014 looked into the, you know, what symptoms do people have with PTSD? What symptoms do people have with complex PTSD? And what symptoms do people have with borderline personality disorder? And it is all done on percentages. It's kind of complicated. You know, you feel free to look up the research yourself. But the um, short of it is what I'll say is PTSD, you tend to have flashbacks. You tend to have re-experiencing. You know, you were in a car accident and you re-experienced that car accident in your mind or you know you have triggers you have flashbacks and this intrusive thoughts and you have distress as a result you uh, often will have nightmares you will often avoid being triggered meaning that with PTSD if you are a war veteran you might avoid even leaving your house because there are noises that remind you of being at war you also will avoid people places or activities in general because when you are uh, in in chaotic situations there's a greater likelihood of being triggered. So, you know, with PTSD, the whole crux of the matter is that you have an event that caused a lot of distress and later on thing, things will trigger memories of that distress and you will have the same distress. So, ten years later, you are just walking on the street and something triggers that memory and boom, you have massive amounts of distress. And then what we see is people will avoid thoughts about their traumas and they will avoid people, places or activities that relate to their trauma because they're trying to avoid being triggered. Also, people will be hypervigilant with with PTSD, meaning that when they're outside, their their heads on a swivel, they're very anxious, uh they have a startle response, that sort of thing, meaning that if there's a loud bang, then, you know, they they jump out of their skin. Then also you will see with PTSD, not always, but a lot, that you will find that people with PTSD will have, they'll be very sensitive to hurt feelings, hurt from other people. So even if you're in a car accident and you have what we call simple trauma, there's a pretty good chance that after the car accident, you'll be, you'll be very raw emotionally. Uh, also, there's a fair amount of guilt that will come with PTSD, un, unreasonable guilt, and also a feeling of being disconnected from others. Because as we shut down our emotional system and we pull away from the world as a way of trying to manage our distress, we will end up feeling disconnected from others. Or we will feel like no one really understands what we're going through and so we'll feel disconnected. So so that's PTSD. Okay, so let's go into complex PTSD. With complex PTSD, you have all of PTSD you have all the all the things I just said that PTSD has. But you also have a lot more likelihood of feeling angry more often, a lot more likelihood of feeling worthlessness, a lot more likelihood of feeling not close to others, not just disconnected, but actually not close to others, more likelihood of mood changes, and more likelihood of feeling empty. So uh, again, with PTSD, you have re-experiencing, avoidance, a sense of threat, hurt feelings, guilt, and disconnection. With complex PTSD, you, you have all that is present with PTSD plus anger, worthlessness, not feeling close to others, mood issues, and feeling empty on the inside. Then we go to borderline personality disorder, and we have all of complex PTSD and PTSD plus we have franticness in, in anxiety, we have unstable relationships. More likelihood, we have unstable sense of self connection with the self that I often talk about. We have to, we have what they call impulsive behavior, which is a little funny to say. You know what we're referring to there is, out of when the when the borderline person is desperate, they will engage in impulsive behavior. They're not impulsive as a personality trait. They're impulsive as a defense, if that makes any sense. Uh, meaning that, you know, one day they just get triggered. They're you know their traumas get triggered relational traumas get triggered and they impulsively break up with someone that sort of thing or they impulsively have sex with someone because they feel very connected to that person because they're desperate for closeness so usually we label or the you know the clinical world will label that impulsive but in my book it's not really impulsive it's it's desperation really uh, self-harm non-suicidal self-injury like cutting Borderline people are more likely to have an angry temper and they're more likely to be paranoid, meaning, uh, you know, distrustful and distorted in terms of their view of other people. So, in this way, we can see that PTSD, complex PTSD, and borderline are on a spectrum. Again, with simple PTSD, like being at war or uh, being mugged or being in a car accident, you will re. If you. Not everyone who goes through those experiences have PTSD, but those who develop PTSD will re-experience it. They'll try to avoid triggers. They will have a a vague sense of threat. They will have hurt feelings, and they will feel disconnected, and they often feel guilty about uh, their condition. Complex PTSD, it's all those things, plus anger, worthlessness, not feeling close to others, mood changes, and feeling empty. And then borderline, you have all of complex PTSD, plus being frantic, unstable relationships, unstable sense of self, impulsive, self-harm, temper, and paranoia. And, uh, uh, but not everyone sees it this way. Some people see complex PTSD and borderline to be completely different things. And it, you know, it really just depends on how you want to word it. For some people, I find that they prefer to call themselves suffering from complex PTSD. You know, it just sounds better to them. Other people like to call themselves suffering from borderline. But the key here is that when you understand borderline and really all the personality disorders, or at least most of them as trauma based, it really help or at least even PTSD based, then you really kind of understand what's going on here. To the borderline person, when their partner slightly rejects them or gives them any kind of indication of rejection, that individual is is the same as a war veteran coming back from the war, seeing a helicopter or hearing a loud gun noise. A massive spike in distress goes off in their body, right? So to the borderline person, their partner looks at them a little funny or doesn't come home from work on time or doesn't text them back. And that is like a war veteran hearing a gunshot. This lightning bolt of distress goes through their body. And it is complicated by the fact that the, you know, to the, to the war veteran, they can run to their spouse and cry to the person with complex PTSD or borderline running to their, their spouse is likely the cause of the trigger. Right. And to run to the spouse means that you have to trust the spouse, but life has told you you can't trust the spouse. And so this compounds the trauma and the distress for the people with complex PTSD and borderline. Now, I'm not saying people with PTSD uh, recover quickly just because they have fewer symptoms. People with PTSD can be, can have extremely difficult symptoms that can be very tenacious and people with borderline can have very mild symptoms that can be easily treated with time. So this isn't a matter of intensity, but it is a matter of the variety of symptoms. PTSD has one set of symptoms, complex PTSD has additional symptoms, and borderline has even more additional symptoms. Now, one way to think about it, and again, it really just depends on your conceptualization and your definitions of all this stuff, but one way to differentiate between complex PTSD and borderline is that for people with borderline, they were likely traumatized much more extensively, maybe much more consistently, maybe with no respite, you know, meaning that there was no grandparents they could turn to for uh, help, uh, and maybe much more intensely over time when they were young. With complex PTSD, you might consider that, again, it depends on how you look at it, that they were also abused by someone that was close to them, but it might not be during their childhood years. It might be when they were a teenager or even in their 20s. If, you, you know, say, for example, you grew up with, you know, relatively a good life, and then in your 20s you marry someone and that person ends up being abusive to you for 10 years. Well, complex PTSD could absolutely emerge from those traumas. But borderline would unlikely to to uh, show up because with borderline we see these issues of unstable sense of self, and this uh, emptiness that they feel on the inside. And well, actually, people with complex PTSD feel empty too. But paranoia, uh, meaning that they have massive distortions about others. So, so to the person who had a relatively good life and then had a, a intimate partner violence relationship in their twenties, for that person with complex PTSD, they can look back on their childhood and their adolescence years and say, well, I know some people are good. I know some people love me. And I know that I am inherently lovable because I was shown that I was lovable. But in my 20s, I was shown something different. And now I'm very, very scared of other human beings. But I know deep down, or I very much, I very much suspect that other people can be trusted some of the time. For people with borderline, they never had that. So from their whole entire life, even if they're 55 years old right now, they might literally have never had a relationship that they could really depend on because early in life, it was parents that were being abusive or abandoning. And then their condition as adults caused them to be very distrustful of other people and very triggered and very reactive, which is understandable. And their relationships tend not to go well in situations like that. And so you have this lifetime that shows you that people cannot be trusted. And so you're going to be more paranoid. You're going to be, more likely to engage in cutting and self-harm because the intensity of the emotions are is much greater and you have nowhere to turn. So, now, that isn't to say that people that uh with complex PTSD didn't have childhood trauma. But in my experience, usually people with the people we categorize as having complex PTSD, they usually had some someone that could soothe them some of the time. Someone who was there for them, someone that showed them that they were at least kind of lovable and that other people at least can be trusted. For people with borderline, they usually experience none of that. There was just no respite, no oasis in the storm, and thus they have much greater symptoms related to that. Now, some of you might be saying, well, I think I have borderline, but, you know, I had a pretty good relationship with my mom. It was my dad that was abusing me. Or, I think I have borderline, but... I, you know, I had a pretty good relationship with my grandparents. Yeah, you know, like I said, <laughs> it's, there's a lot of variability here. the The key is is to look at symptoms really when we're differentiating between complex PTSD and borderline, regardless of the history. Again, with borderline, what distinguishes it from complex PTSD? More franticness, unstable relationships, like a lifetime of unstable relationships a unstable sense of self, meaning that the individual just doesn't know who they are, is not connected with their emotions, whereas complex PTSD, people tend to be connected with a sense of self. With complex PTSD, they tend to know who they are generally and and might know their emotions a little better, which points to the likelihood that for those with complex PTSD, they had some attunement when they were young so that they could develop that sense of self. Uh, with borderline, you're going to see more of that quote-unquote impulsivity, but more likely to self-harm, a, a bigger angry temper, whether they express it or not, uh, internally or externally, and paranoia. All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Lindsay from Upstate. Is that Upstate New York? I'm not sure. Or is that a city? Um, or is it just a state of mind? Lindsay is just in an Upstate state of mind. I hear a lot about how common depression and anxiety are, and I know they are serious conditions. Anxiety and depression seem to be incredibly common primary diagnoses for people. Untreatable depression and anxiety seem to be very, to be very common among humans. But once that depression or anxiety diagnosis is given, it seems like very few people get further screening and are left with, quote-unquote, therapy exercise and hope another option is approved to try, unquote. Is it possible that anxiety and depression are being overdiagnosed as primary conditions instead of being recognized as symptoms of other underdiagnosed conditions like ADHD? I hear very similar experiences from women diagnosed with autism spectrum, and I'm sure there are other possibilities I don't know about. End of email. Absolutely. It happens all the time. Misdiagnosis happens all the time. Diagnosing people is extremely difficult. It takes a long time. Even something as, quote unquote, simple as depression or anxiety, particularly if it it is a secondary issue to something else you really have to spend a lot of time with it but can you just slap a label of de- major depression or anxiety and, or generalized anxiety or something on on someone yeah and i see it happen all the time i see clinicians doing this all the time they they just don't take the time to really assess people but it can happen in the other direction as well that uh, a lot of kids uh statistically suffer from anxiety but Almost all the time, I will see those kids being mislabeled as having ADHD. So you'll see people being underdiagnosed with ADHD and being labeled as being depressed or anxious. And you'll see people being overdiagnosed with ADHD, meaning that they have depression or anxiety, and they're being labeled as ADHD. Um, And various different other mistakes are happening, you know, in various other areas as well. Now, you say that once someone has an anxiety or depression diagnosis that there's no further there's no further screening and i don't know about that I, you know it depends on the clinician certainly with some clinicians who don't take the time sh- certainly but i know clinicians like myself and others around me who really take the time to investigate this you know really try to figure out particularly if it's the issue that they're bringing into therapy it's really important to find a clinician that that does this sort of thing if if you're with a clinician that seems to just take things very briefly and assess you very briefly, or at the very least, just tell your therapist, look, I know that you diagnosed me with generalized anxiety in the beginning, but I'm not really quite sure that's what's going on with me, if anything. So, you know, feel free to advocate for yourself. But then you mentioned this other thing where, uh, you know, people don't get any further screening, and then they're just told, look, you need to go to therapy, you need to have good exercise, these kind of simplistic answers to things, and yeah, that happens. That is an unfortunate thing. And you can have someone that suffers from depression, anxiety, ADHD or anything else and they're given extremely simplistic advice about what to do. Is it good advice? Yeah, it might be, but it doesn't it sometimes it's not very helpful, right? So it's important again to find a clinician that really takes things seriously, someone who is like how you doing? And you're like, well, I i don't feel any better. I feel, in fact, I feel worse. I feel more depressed now. And, and that therapist really listens and is there, you know, having empathy and also saying things like, look, let's try to come at this from an another angle. Let, let's see if this works. Let's try this. Because Let, you know. depression, anxiety, and other conditions, even physical, a lot of physical conditions as well. You need that clinician who is there really caring and really taking the time to explore all the avenues available and that clinician is looking up research in between sessions and if you're a clinician out there i hope that you're doing that this next email is from upper tier patron natalia from amsterdam she writes is there something like no attachment if you hadn't had any relationship with your parents my husband my husband and i didn't have any relationship with parents nor parental figures and we are doing rather fine But sometimes I wonder if we are not just there for each other as roommates and not a real couple. We never fight, we don't do much together, but we support each other greatly. I feel very good about our relationship. I have been in therapy for years, and my partner is in therapy as well. End of email. Well, the first thought I have is I'm really sorry that you went through that, you and your husband, Went through a lot. If you didn't have a relationship with parents or any parental figures, sounds like a lot of neglect happened. And I'm really sorry you went through that, the two of you. The second thing is, is I'll commend you that, regardless of that, you are doing rather fine, and that you have a good relationship and you support each other a lot. So that's good. Uh, you also mention that you feel maybe as though you're roommates and not as close as other couples are. You never fight and you don't do much together. Well, you know, if you like your relationship, then what's the difference, right? If it's what the two of you want and it's fulfilling, then uh, who cares, right? Now, might your relationship be uh, on the cold side as a result of your early childhood neglect? Uh, Yeah, certainly possible. Uh, I I would imagine that that's likely. Uh, Hard for me to know, obviously. I would talk with your therapist about that. The other possibility is that... Even though you didn't have uh, much parental figures when you were young, it's possible that you had siblings or just someone in your life that was there for you enough such that you do have some sense of attachment and some sense of self-worth and trust of other people. It's also possible that through therapy, you have actually gained some earned security in attachment, but obviously, I don't know. right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Alexa from Michigan. She writes, Why can't I stop absorbing and mirroring other people's emotions? I recently learned that I have borderline personality disorder. I've noticed that I tend to absorb other people's emotions without realizing it. For example, if my boyfriend is frustrated, I get frustrated with him for being frustrated. Sometimes I take his emotions personally, and sometimes I don't. But either way, I can't help but to mirror other people's emotions. Do you have any idea why this might be? End of email. Well, I don't know for you, Alexa, but I would talk to your therapist about it. But for a lot of people with borderline, they grew up in an environment in which their parenting was very inconsistent. And so they learned as a young person that they had to be extremely attuned to their parents and to those around them such that they could get their needs met. So the child is three years old. And they can't just be a, a cute three-year-old and, and get love. They have to kind of game the system. They have to be ultra-aware, hyper-vigilant about what emotions are going on in their parents. Are you going to get abused? You know, that's another reason why you would be very uh, noticing of other people's emotions. So that's one reason why, or it's one possible reason why people that are labeled with borderline would be uh, very susceptible to, quote-unquote, absorbing others other emotions. The other way of looking at it is through differentiation in that when you are, when you lack attunement as a young person, you develop, uh, you don't develop differentiation. You don't develop the ability to differentiate between self and other, and you will look at yourself as a, uh, blend with other people instead of as a separate human being. Uh, when you are one year old, we aren't very differentiated from our parents we see ourselves as an extension of them and we see them as an extension of us. When, when we cry, we want them to be there for us. And when they're happy and they're sad, we want, we go with them, you know, Uh, because we depend on them. We need to mirror them. We need to be with them. We need to be in sync with our parents in order to survive. Plus we don't really know how to navigate the world ourselves. Well, when you go through a lot of abuse and you develop the defenses that have you, you lean in to relationships around you and to fuse with other people and mesh with other people, then you retain that one year old mentality, that one year old mechanism of absorbing other people's emotions. Um, so, as an adult, you know because of the neglect or abuse you went through, you will you know just feel other people's emotions. Now, the other important thing to think about is. It's not necessarily you feeling that, you know, because a lot of people uh, with this condition will call themselves, you know, you know, I'm an empath, they'll say, you know, I can read other people's minds. Well, uh, some of the times that's true, but other times it's just that when other people seem to have an emotion, you feel an emotion and then you assume the other person is feeling that emotion. So, for example, you see your partner do something behaviorally, like, they kind of stomp around the house a little bit and you interpret that as them being frustrated and angry and then you because of the enmeshment and lack of differentiation also feel the frustration and have a have no ability to differentiate and say okay that's his emotion not mine and uh, but what was really happening was he was just stomping around because he had an itch on his foot and he was trying to itch his foot and you interpreted it as him being angry, and then you quote unquote absorbed the anger so it's important to know that because people who who have these kinds of traumas can sometimes be a little overconfident in their ability to interpret other people so you know you just have to again in therapy sift through all that stuff or with you know dbt sift through all that all that sort of thing. The other reason why some people with borderline will get very Uh, affected by other people's emotions is because when, you know, let's say Alexa, your boyfriend is frustrated, right? Well, deep down in your soul, it's possible. Again, talk with your therapist about this, that when your boyfriend, when you notice, or when you perceive your boyfriend is being frustrated, that triggers something in you that says, if he is frustrated, then he might get frustrated at me, or he might not be available for me emotionally which will cause me to not get my needs met and or cause him to leave me. So if he is frustrated, you know, I see him being a little frustrated. I, because of my traumas, I will catastrophize this and I will wonder if he's frustrated, will that mean it'll cascade to a number of def- different other events where he will either abuse me or leave me. And so when I see him frustrated and I catastrophize it, uh, I I get very, very upset at him for being frustrated and I will get angry at him and say stop having that feeling because deep down I'm terrified that the frustration is going to lead to something really horrible for me so that, that is a, you know a common reason as to why people with borderline will have a really hard time with other people's emotions particularly when it's negative because when they were young and their parent got frustrated it usually did result in abandonment and or abuse all right, The next email is from upper-tier patron Katrina from California. She says, Do you have any advice on how to confront a neglectful parent? Do you have any advice on how to confront a neglectful parent? My sister has three children. Everyone in our immediate family notices that my sister treats the younger children better than her oldest child. Some examples are talking to the younger children in a much nicer tone, letting them throw fits but still rewarding them, and just overall paying a lot more attention to them. At times, she even ignores her oldest child, the 11-year-old. We want to confront her about it, but she has been known to distance herself and hold grudges. I want to do everything I can to help my nephew. Do you have any advice on how to confront someone like this? Should we consider this as neglect? End of email. Well, the last question I'll answer first, which is, should you consider it neglect? I'm guessing you're talking about, you know, uh, reporting her to Child Protective Services. And you can, but in the brief way you described it, it doesn't sound like the government would do anything about that, because you're really talking about some debatable issues from the outside. But uh, you certainly can make the report if you feel that is nece- that it's necessary. And, you know, that can help. Child Protective Services don't usually take children away. They usually will come in and actually try to help the parent. That's usually the the first thing, especially in a situation like this. But yeah, this is a tough situation. Hard to watch if you and your family are watching your nephew being abused and neglected. You know, it's hard to watch. And it's also really hard to change someone that doesn't want to be changed. Uh, what, sh- what should you do? Well, uh, one, I would suggest parenting therapy for her. She might actually be overwhelmed and Really appreciate a referral like that. Uh, The other thing is to go on a campaign. You are talking about, you know, how do I confront a neglectful parent? That is the wrong attitude to have, and that is one that is really common in our society. Which is like, you know, we 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 have this building problem that we're seeing in this other person. Uh, You know, it all has to do with like the intervention mentality, like with alcoholism, which you know can work sometimes, but it often doesn't. the The key is is to go on a campaign of how do you convince your sister so confronting your sister if if you believe that will convince your sister then i guess go for it but i imagine that wouldn't be your best bet your best bet likely is something like sitting down with your sister and getting to know her you know getting to know her struggles listening to her saying you know how's it going with parenting it seems like sometimes things can be a little tough you know become an ally and really enter her world because there's another possibility that you just have no idea what's going on there's a lot of judgment that's happening towards parents. You might be watching 1% of what's going on, and in fact, your sister overall, if you were a fly in the wall, you would find that your sister is actually really good to the oldest kid. So it's hard to know if you're really seeing things accurately. It's really common for people and family members included to look at other people in the family and be like, I don't like the way you're parenting. So, and I'd be careful about that. But, you know, that doesn't mean you don't do anything. So you sit down with her, you get to know her, and you talk about parenting and just be like, hey, you know, how are things going? And once she perceives you as an ally, then you can start saying things like, you know, sis, I have been noticing some things, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong. Um, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I love you, and I love your kids, and I love, you know, your my nephew, the 11-year-old. And sometimes, I don't know, kind of seems like you are a little short with him. How are things going there? Is is he just particularly hard to deal with sometimes? Okay, so then you enter into a conversation like that, but you have to be very tentative because parents don't like to be judged, <laughs> and they're usually their worst critic to begin with, and if you get criticism from the outside, particularly from a younger sister. Uh, it's you know, it's going to be hard to hear. So it, now, this takes a lot of time, and maybe you don't want to do that, but this is more likely to work, and this is the kind of thing that people need to do more often Uh, a lot of our problems in life when it comes to changing other people's minds uh, can be solved when we go on a rational long-term campaign in which we enter the other person's world and we become an ally instead of an enemy all righty then well that does it for that episode of psychology in seattle i think i got to all of the upper tier patron emails i'm not quite sure Uh, And a lot of the uh, regular patron emails and everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of others because you deserve it. You really, really do.